the basic community knowledge and understanding of what is normal is completely backwards. For most cases of low milk supply, the cause of the low milk supply was not a primary issue of the mom's body, but a formula feeding itself actually led to the low milk supply. Really good, effective hand expression is one of the best tools somebody could have going into this. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Carmen, and I'm a certified breastfeeding counselor. And I'm Ruth Green, an international birth doula. And this is the Having a Baby in China podcast. Reminder, this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. The views expressed here are the personal opinions of individuals and do not necessarily reflect any official stance or recommendation by having a baby in China. Hey Jacqueline, how are you? Good. Hey Ruth, how are you? I am doing great and I'm super excited that we have Dr. Layla with us today. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Layla, for being with us. My pleasure. We are really, really thankful for you being here. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting. Yeah, so glad that you could come on and talk with us. I first met you back in 2016 when I moved to Tianjin and I was looking to bring my kids to a doctor. I wanted to talk to an American pediatrician and I got your name and you were in Beijing at the time, and I took the trip to come visit you, and you just put me at ease, and also I really appreciated how you really, you know, took your time to look over all of my questions that we had, and then also you followed up and gave me a call and said, hey, you know, this is what we found, and this is, you know, we don't need to be worrying about this and that, and so I really, really appreciated that, and that was my first introduction to you and your work. I actually remember, Jacqueline, you calling me or texting me. must have been texting. You're like, I have found the most amazing pediatrician in Beijing. I'm so excited. And then like a week later, you're like, and she's moving to Guangzhou. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, not a week later. I was so sad. <laughs> well, maybe not a week <laughs> It was pretty short. It was pretty short afterwards. I don't remember how, how soon after. But Layla, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? So yes, yeah. I'm Layla, Layla Sabet, and I'm a pediatrician from the U.S. I actually did my pediatric training in Washington, D.C. back in 2000, from 2005 to 2008. And I ended up coming to China in 2011. So I was like three years practicing in hospital before and doing actually in-hospital care before I moved to Beijing and began my outpatient career. And so since 2011, I've been an outpatient pediatrician in China. I spent six years of that time in Beijing and then in 2017 came to Guangzhou. I also worked a lot sort of self-taught in breastfeeding support originally and did a lot, a lot of breastfeeding support. So then in 2019, I finally sat for the IBCLC exam and became IBCLC certified. And then in addition to all of that, I actually also am a mother and I became a mother 
just one month out from my from graduating from my residency training. I finished residency in pediatrics and then exactly one month later I delivered my first child. And interestingly, that wasn't what sparked my initial interest in breastfeeding because apparently I, I had forgotten about this, but I had a friend from med school who visited me and reminded me back when I was in med school, she remembered me saying that that I thought breastfeeding was the most interesting and amazing thing that happened in mm. life because like you're like literally like building a human from your own body material. And she remembered me making this statement back in med school. So this like interest I had in breastfeeding is pretty longstanding. But when I graduated residency, supposedly equipped with all the knowledge I needed to be able to like take care of um, new babies and children and and clinic and, and in the hospital. And then I delivered my own child and I realized that everything I thought I, I knew about breastfeeding and about just generally about infant feeding was all like not really right. Mm -hmm. And also just as a new breastfeeding mom, it was all totally useless to me. And I felt that if I really wanted to support moms with breastfeeding in a real way, I needed to start learning. So that began my my breastfeeding education was breastfeeding my child. And when I arrived in China in 2011, I was seven months pregnant with my second child. <laughs> and then I'm all about like having kids in like challenging circumstances. <laughs> I did residency pregnant, moved to China pregnant. Anyway, so then I I had my second child and I really wanted to get tapped into whatever breastfeeding resources, mm -hmm. not really for myself, but I wanted to be plugged in so that I could start working in breastfeeding support somehow. So I started looking and networking and finding like whoever was doing any work regarding breastfeeding support. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they had no English language La Leche League group. There were Chinese La Leche League leaders and there was one American La Leche League leader, but she was a like a Chinese American mm -hmm who in the Chinese group, she didn't do the English language. So I, I started to kind of see what it was I could do. I went to work not long after my son was born. And again, then started to try to meet more people work. I worked more with the Chinese Aleche League leaders. And then finally, like, met Beck. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Beck was actually pregnant with her second child. And then after that, she became a leader. And then again, finally, the English, the English language group was reborn. So I was really happy. And then I, I had my third baby, not long after that. Mm -hmm. um, also, so I had two babies in, in Beijing. And then um, mm. by that time, by the time I had my third, we had a pretty active group of breastfeeding support going. And also by that time, I had really spent a lot of time researching and studying and getting my own knowledge pool together for breastfeeding support. So that's kind of my story in summary. And then we moved to Guangzhou a few years later, 2017. We moved down to Guangzhou in search of warmer weather. <laughs> <laughs> Why ever would you want that? <laughs> as we sit here, <laughs> as we sit here freezing Jacqueline and me in our northern apartments. <laughs> I could not handle it. Six years was like more than enough. I'm from Florida originally. So the climate really got to me a lot. So anyways, yeah. So we moved to Guangzhou. So it's interesting. I hear you're, you're talking about, you know, you went through medical school and you were studying and then you had your child and you realized that 
you didn't know quite enough about breastfeeding. Can you talk about how much does a doctor, you know, a pediatrician gets in training in lactation? Yeah. So back when I trained, which was 2000, like I said, 2005 to 2008, it was zero. And now it's not standardized. So even though there are programs that do now have some lactation training for residents, but it's not standardized. It's not a standardized part of the curriculum. So maybe a few programs will have something, but not every program will have. And coming out of residency, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about real, you know, like the standard textbook of like the babies should feed every three to four hours. And there was no real understanding of the physiology of newborn transition in a human milk-based environment. And everything has in within the profession shifted a lot over the period of, you know, the, the shift is going back again, in, at least in Western, in the Western world, but it, everything shifted into artificial feeding as the primary framework that the profession exists within. Mm -hmm. And so if you just go based on your training, you don't understand. And of course, also, if you've never had a child, then you really don't understand what are the like real physiologic standards that you have to follow. And so I think it would be quite impossible to be able to look at one pediatrician and gauge whether or not they are, I wouldn't say breastfeeding supportive because theoretically everybody supports breastfeeding Mm -hmm. philosophically, but not necessarily have the ability to do it practically. Mm -hmm. And unless a doctor also has that IBCLC certification Mm -hmm. or some sort of CLC, like Mm -hmm. certified lactation consultant training, Mm -hmm. something above what we do in medicine, there's no, there's no real way to know for sure. I can tell, but mm-hmm. for a lay person, I think this would be really difficult. And so the one piece of advice I can offer is if I think the pediatrician IBCLC is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. I was the only one in China until one of my colleagues trained and became IBCLC certified. I think you guys remember Dr. Balinas mm. from the clinic. No. So the same clinic that I worked in and she was one of my colleagues and she trained as an IB certified as an IBCLC, but she's also left and moved back to her home country last, last summer. So I believe at least for the foreigners, I'm the only IBCLC pediatric doctor, maybe the only P- IBCLC physician, mm. but there, I actually have encountered a couple of IBCLC physicians that are not pediatric doctors. And okay. There's an OBGYN doctor who's IBCLC certified in Shenzhen. <laughs> I've not actually met her in person, but I've seen some of her videos and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, so this is like a one key is pulling this knowledge base from IBCLC certification and also medical training and putting it together. Mm-hmm. This is the the one unusual aspect that most people don't have. And then there are some people who study, but like, honestly, like I have a, like a colleague that I work with, one of the few colleagues I work with that really does respect what knowledge base I have. That's not standard. And she refers patients to me when, when it's really <laughs> like specific breastfeeding challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so there's also the point of knowing what you don't know and referring to a specialist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So that's sort of where I come in. But I mean, the basic knowledge, a lot of 
doctors could have potentially had their own babies and gone through sort of what I went through and realized that it's not quite what they read in the textbooks. And that might be enough for the average questions of, is this normal? Is this normal? Is this normal? But for the more challenging situation, like you would need a specialist. So you mentioned that, you know, you came from the U.S., which at the time when you were studying was coming out of a background where formula feeding was kind of the norm or normative. I would still say it is. And the the fact that the fact that every research article is published as the benefits of breastfeeding, just that fact alone is enough to sort of really clarify the paradigm that we have to exist inside of of formula feeding as the norm. You're referring to where we say breastfeeding should be the norm. There shouldn't be, yeah. it shouldn't be spoken of like that there's benefits of breastfeeding because breastfeeding is the norm. It's more that it's the like- physiologic standard. It's the, we call it the gold standard. It's the physiologic gold standard. So anything other than that is then maybe considered lower, mm-hmm. right? Or increasing risks or... Mm-hmm not as good like so the so we're not really holding up everything else against this gold standard that we know is the gold standard what we're doing is looking at what we think of as the norm and then saying oh look but breastfeeding this other thing that we forgot about is better (laughs) (laughs) so what are some of those benefits like why are you so passionate about breastfeeding as being the norm and yeah because it is like you said it is a really unique thing so yeah it's just because i've studied the research and because i spent a lot of time studying this that And because, so I'm a pediatrician, and so I'm passionate about the health of children. (laughs) And what I do is, as a primary care pediatrician, is a lot of preventive medicine. So I see a lot of healthy children with minor problems, like Mm -hmm. colds and flus and ear infections, and, you know, maybe, maybe mild to moderate problems. And I, what I know is that for like for every children i see you know the ones that are breastfed children versus the ones that were not breastfed children and then the comparison of the of the level of illnesses and the level of challenges those children have to face it's quite clear and then for me becoming a pediatrician so like when we go into med school we bo- rotate through all these different specialties and then we have to choose, okay, what are we going to become? Are mm-hmm. we going to be a family doctor? Are we going to be a surgeon, a pediatrician, an OBGYN, a, a dermatologist? Like what residency am I going to apply for? And so when it came down to it, for me, it was always kids. And the choice I had to make was, do I become a pediatrician or do I become a pediatric surgeon? Because it was always going to be kids, right? So Mm -hmm. I just had to decide, do I choose a medical specialty or a surgical specialty? But it's always going to be kids. And it was always going to be kids for me because of this, this sense that children are innocent. And when, you know, when I rotated through the adult specialties, this feeling of utter frustration that like, you'd know if you just stop smoking, eat better, exercise. (laughs) So many of these health problems are going to improve and maybe resolve and that you can't get adults to change their behaviors, Mm -hmm. generally speaking. And so, you know, the person has a heart attack. And then I remember standing outside the VA hospital watching the guy that was post myocardial infarction standing with his IV pulse smoking his cigarette. (laughs) Like, like, It was so frustrating for me, but this man, like that was his choice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's his body and 
it's his life and it's his choice. But for these children, it's not their choice. Mm -hmm. For these newborn babies, it's not their choice. So now we're talking about a child, a person who is born, who is 100% dependent on the decisions of the person. And when Mm -hmm. that other person makes poor choices because of improper or incorrect education, like this is, that child now has to live with the consequences of those poor choices for the rest of their life. So if I can educate parents Mm -hmm. and parents, generally speaking, I know like people that don't go into pediatrics will always say, oh, I would have loved to go into pediatrics because I love kids, but I can't stand the parents. And like, I've heard that many, many times. Oh, I would have loved to go into pediatrics, but I can't stand the parents. The thing is, I find parents so much easier (laughs) than the adults as the patients themselves, Mm -hmm. because everybody wants to do what's right for their child. Mm -hmm. So it's really all about what they know and what they're able to do, Mm -hmm. right? So I felt like when I work with parents, the parents, um, I told this guy, (laughs) this father, they had just delivered their second baby. And we were talking about like, what can they do to ensure the better health of their children in the years to come? And I was like, well, these are the risks of, I think we were talking about like, you know, bed sharing and the risks Mm -hmm. of this and that. And the issue of smoking came up and the father was a smoker. And so Mm -hmm. I, I was like, oh, so let me explain to you. And I started talking about, you know, the, how, just with smoking one cigarette, most people don't realize that after you finish smoking a cigarette, the toxins that you exhale continue to be exhaled from your breath for sometimes up to four to six hours afterwards. Yeah. So every time you hold this little baby and kiss his face, mm-hmm. you are exhaling carbon monoxide and other toxins right mm-hmm. into the air he's breathing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like explaining this. And suddenly he puts his hand up and he's like, Dr. Layla, say no more. It's done. And he quit smoking right at that moment. Wow. Amazing. And so like, this is why I like working with parents because he may never have been willing to make a sacrifice for himself, Mm -hmm. for his Mm -hmm. own improvement. Mm -hmm. But in two seconds, he didn't hesitate to do this for his child. And so I actually think working with parents is great. And sure, it can be frustrating when people don't follow your advice, but generally speaking, I think it's easier to convince people of the best health choices for their own children. And again, like I said, the children are innocent. They don't get choice, but they then do have to suffer the consequences of whatever choices were made for them. So I want to educate parents. And I feel that through this education can build like better health for life. So in terms of the research around breastfeeding, the health impact lasts forever. Mm. It never stops. And now there's this great study that's just come out. I don't know if you've seen it, the women's mortality study. Mm -hmm. It looked at women. So I can send you this article later, but it looked at women breastfeeding and actually like looked at the cumulative breastfeeding duration that women have and then their total mortality. And the mortality decreased for like every month increase of total cumulative breastfeeding time. Wow. And they saw this impact up to one year. Is this looking at they were breastfed themselves or they were breastfeeding a child? They were breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And then would this be cumulative like across children too? Like if you had more kids? So the problem is that after 12 months period, then the data becomes fuzzy mm-hmm. and and then we can't really look at this data any longer. Mm. So w- the thing we know is that 
having babies also increases the risk for women, uh-huh. not the breastfeeding part, but the like pregnancy, childbirth, yeah. mm-hmm. postpartum part, right? So with increasing parity, we have increased risk for mortality. Okay. And so once the cumulative breastfeeding time got to a certain point, then the mortality risk seemed to decrease, but that could have easily been attributed with the risks of increased oh, parity, yeah. mm-hmm. not necessarily increase breastfeeding. I mean, I was just thinking Jacqueline has five and I have four. So we're going to live forever, right? (laughs) (laughs) My cumulative breastfeeding time is about nine years. (laughs) That's amazing. That's great. So I work a lot with clients that are preparing for birth. And how would like what kind of recommendations would you give to someone who's pregnant and looking to have a baby in the next few months? Like what can they do to help prepare themselves, you know, set them up for the best chance of breastfeeding success? I think that one of the things that's key is understanding what's normal in the first like week. Yes. Maybe keeping in check expectations. Mm. One of the things that I've, that I felt when I was having my first was like this realization that when women are having their first baby, the difference between women having their first baby versus like subsequent babies is you spend all your time and energy focused on the pregnancy and the birth. Mm-hmm. And most women put very little thought into what happens like two seconds after the baby's born. <laughs> <laughs> so having some preparation of like what is normal and then having people around us that perhaps really have the right experience. So for example, and I say the right experience. I'm saying this like not capriciously. I know women who want to hire like the best nanny or confinement nurse or whatever. And usually they want somebody who's like older and has like all this years of experience. But the question you have to ask is, okay, of all these years of experience, how many of the women you cared for were hundred percent breastfeeding mm-hmm. their babies? Because, um, they can have like 20 years of experience of doing everything the wrong way. And it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a good preparation, right? So the the detail question. So if you are hiring someone to support you, you need a bit more detail. Did you have your own child? Did you breastfeed that child? Mm-hmm. How long did you breastfeed for? Like, this is a really important. And then how many of the women you cared for were totally breastfeeding? And, mm-hmm. and so that's one thing. For in terms of the support people. The second thing is I would look at expectations. So what I've noticed is, and this is very across culture, totally across culture. When people have a baby, these first few days after the baby is born, most people don't really know what is normal and what is not normal. Mm -hmm. And most people attribute every normal thing that I look at that as normal as some sign of it means I don't have enough milk or the baby's not feeding enough. And so so like this understanding of what is normal. So a baby that's awake and alert and wanting to feed and be on the mom's chest and be nursing very frequently is often attributed to, oh, the mom must not have enough milk because he wants to feed all the time. And looking at what's biologically, physiologically normal, a baby that sleeps well is actually much more concerning in the Mm. newborn period Mm -hmm. for a baby that's not being properly fed. So our knowledge and understanding of the basic, I should say the basic like community knowledge and understanding of what is normal is completely backwards. And because of that, when I counsel new mothers, I tell them, look, you can't trust behavior. Some babies want to be on their mom all the time. It's not because they're not getting enough milk 
right? It, it, mm-hmm. it might be, it might not be. It's not reliable. It's not a reliable mm-hmm. marker. How much the baby sleeps is not a reliable marker of the adequacy of milk feeding. How often the baby cries is not a reliable marker of adequacy of milk feeding. So by removing these subjective measures, mm-hmm. which are not reliable and really just guesswork, mm-hmm. and then replacing them with completely, totally objective measures that you can 100% measure and know. And so I always tell parents, you look at the weight, the pee and the poo. Mm-hmm. These are things we can look at, we can measure. And they're the only reliable markers mm-hmm. of the adequacy of milk feeding. So we know that the weight has to drop and the baby's weight drops from birth because the baby's living inside of liquid, living inside of water for nine months. Mm-hmm. So the baby was born essentially swollen. So there's extra fluid, we say edema throughout the tissues in the baby's body. And in the first week, they pee off the extra fluid that they don't need. It's a physiologic diuresis. So this is what the weight loss is. Mm-hmm. And then the weight loss can drop up to 10 to 12% in a totally normal circumstance. Actually, the statistics are based on the very huge study looking at breastfed babies and weight loss. They looked at something like 80,000 babies. And in this study, the 90th percentile for weight loss was for vaginal deliveries right around 10 to 11% and for C-section deliveries right between 11 and 12%. That was the 90th percentile. So there's like 10% of babies that even lose a little bit more than that. But that point should be sort of a flag for us. Okay, Mm -hmm. maybe we don't automatically just jump to giving formula, but this should be a flag for us to evaluate what's happening, to look at the feeding, right? Mm -hmm. So if a baby is, let's say, born at 3 kg, then the baby could lose up to 300 grams without breaking a sweat. And then looking at the timing, so the weight loss loses, loses, loses. By day four or five, it should stabilize. Mm -hmm. And by day five, six, it should be starting to climb back up again. And then the, again, this like 90th percentile, 90th percentile, 90% of babies will be back at birth weight by 14 days. And then from 14 days on, the baby's weight increase will range somewhere between 25 and 45 grams per day. So that these like simple calculations are a really easy way to check and confirm that a baby is getting enough. Do you recommend that people buy their own scale then? I mean, as a professional, I know these things, but then when it comes to my clients who aren't necessarily going into the hospital every day to have their baby's weight checked. So it just depends on the situation. So like I had a baby that was born about a month, a little over a month ago, And we had a lot of lockdowns happening at that time. They weren't able to get back to see me until the baby was three weeks old. Mm -hmm. And I was managing, I was helping them manage the feeding remotely. And this was one of these really sleepy, slow feeding babies who, if I hadn't been right on top of this, he wouldn't have gained, he could have become dehydrated. Like this was actually one of those dangerous situations. And I I did have them buy a scale and then send me weights on a regular basis. And I helped them manage everything remotely. Then when the baby was three weeks old, was able to get to see them in person and check everything by myself and see what was happening. And now the baby's doing really well. But like, so in some circumstances, yeah. Now the good thing about China is Mm -hmm. buying a decent 
not terrible. Infant scale is really easy. They run somewhere in the range of around 100 to 120 yuan, and you can get a pretty good one on Taobao. And so this is something that's not too too challenging for us to do. So I have done that. And it really will be in specific cases. And then there's some cases where the weight's already going up before the baby's even discharged from the hospital and the mom is like mm-hmm. producing buckets of milk and the baby's feeding so actively. And so, no, I would never have them buy a scale at home. I would just say, okay, come back in a week and let me check to see that the baby's still okay. So if there was like extra concerns. Yeah, it would depend on the situation. So you were talking about other unbiased ways of knowing that baby's getting enough milk. So weight, pee, poo. So the pee looks like this. In the first 24 hours, the babies have to have a minimum of one urine for the entire 24-hour period. In the second 24 hours, the babies, and this is such an easy formula, day mm-hmm. one, one urine, day two, two urines, day three, three urines, day four, four urines. So it's really easy to remember, but that's what it is. In the second mm-hmm. 24 hours, they need to have had two urines. In the third 24 hours, so that's the minimum. That's like the mm-hmm. the base, the, the bottom number. Mm-hmm. So if they're producing any amount of urine above that, not worried at all. And then the last thing we look at is the poop. The poop is sort of like the least important of the markers, but we still have to look at it. And essentially, we're tracking the color changes of the poop. So the poop will start out black. Okay. And then it will be black for a few days. Mm-hmm. Usually by day four or five, at the latest day five, it should be transitioning from black to green. Mm-hmm. So it'll go black, dark green, greenish, brownish, brownish, yellowish. And then by by week two, it should be bright yellow. Mm-hmm. And so if that first transition from black to green should be happening by no later than day five, black poop on day five is worrying. Mm. So this is where I get a little bit confused because most people have gone home from the hospital by day three, let's say three or yeah. four. Yeah. So they would still have black poop. It wouldn't be surprising. Yeah. But they're telling us, oh, our baby was crying so much. And so the nurses keep telling me I don't have enough milk. So we're doing formula or people will tell me, yeah. well, I'm going to take some formula to the hospital just in case. Yeah. So uh, the thing is, is like we're talking about the first 48 to 72 hours. There is almost zero need for supplementation in that time frame because we haven't even gotten to the point where the baby has lost enough weight. So if we if we are starting to see that a baby in that first or second day is so crying is never a marker of poor feeding. <laughs> never crying is never a marker of poor feeding if the baby even has the energy to cry it means they're getting Mm -hmm. calories right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. a baby that doesn't get enough calories doesn't wake up doesn't feed well sleeps a lot they literally go into starvation mode they cannot gather the energy Mm -hmm. to feed well so the first step is going to be colostrum expression actually colostrum is one way to prepare prenatally that most people don't even consider. I know a lot of doctors that have babies back home who will spend the last month expressing colostrum, the last Mm. month of their pregnancy, and have like tubes and tubes and tubes just in case, because they're doctors. So we like, we always anticipate the worst case scenario. 
So one of the Facebook groups I'm in is this group called Dr. Milk, and it's just physician, breastfeeding mom physicians. <laughs> okay. And so like several of these women have posted the pictures of their little vials of expressed colostrum that they, and it's like tons, they get tons and tons of expressed colostrum just in that last month before they deliver. And then they go to the hospital with their own colostrum ready. So this is a good way to prepare. Every woman, even women that have enough milk supply or have some issue with their breasts, they still have colostrum. Mm -hmm. Like, so the colostrum is not the issue. It's whether or not the baby can move it well. Mm -hmm. Can the baby actually get the colostrum out, right? Mm -hmm. So if we give the formula, mm -hmm. then suddenly they become very sleepy mm -hmm. for like three hours. And it's not because their stomachs are full. We have scientific research that has already already completely disproven the notion of full stomach means a baby sleeps. The mm. stomach and sleep have no relationship to each other whatsoever. They're disconnected. Mm. Sleep is regulated 100% by the brain. So when we start applying these cow milk proteins, suddenly we have this hugely sedative effect on the brain and then the baby sleeps. Mm -hmm. Most people interpret that as, oh, look, now my baby's full. Actually, now your baby's drugged. <laughs> That's mm. really what it means. <laughs> It means nothing else except now your baby is drugged and sedated. Mm, and yeah. so what's happening to this drugged and sedated baby is now they're not stimulating the breast. Mm -hmm. They're not removing the colostrum because they're drugged and sedated, right? Mm. So it is designed, totally designed to sabotage breastfeeding, this mm. early unnecessary formula supplementation. It is designed to sabotage breastfeeding from the beginning. And so for most cases of low milk supply, the cause of the low milk supply was not a primary issue of the mom's body, but a mm. secondary issue in which the formula feeding itself actually led to the low milk supply problem. Mm. So if we recognize that human babies are very alert, very active, naturally want to feed all the time, mm -hmm. then we can just say, okay, well, this baby that is feeding 10 to 12 times in 24 hours and every mm -hmm. feeding is long, it pretty much means you're like one hour off, one hour on, one hour off, one hour on, right? Mm -hmm. But it's completely physiologically normal. Yeah. At least for those couple of days until we see the effects of what we call lactogenesis stage two, yeah. where the milk volumes increase dramatically. And so this colostrum period, really understanding what is the normal physiology mm -hmm. of the colostrum feeding, it's a transition. Remember, when the baby's in utero, when the baby's inside the mom, they're getting glucose and nutrients and oxygen mm -hmm. in a continuous drip, like mm -hmm. an IV drip, but it's yeah. just the umbilical cord, right? So it's a continuous, continuous stream okay. every single mm -hmm. second of every day. So now we go from that into a system of bolus feeding, mm -hmm. stomach filling, stomach emptying, stomach filling, stomach emptying. So even if we have a one hour time where they're not getting the nutrition, that's still a big transition. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I've never heard it explained that way. It's a big change. And then to, to expect them to go from continuous feeding to like bolus feeding every three to four hours is just unreasonable. Mm, yeah. Just totally wow. unreasonable. So it's every one to two hours, generally speaking, in the beginning days for the colostrum. The colostrum volumes are usually really small. They increase a little bit every day. Mm -hmm. And then boom, you have this rapid increase in milk. So the the more worrying thing is the baby who's super sleepy, who's mm. not stimulating the breast, who's mm -hmm. not latching well, mm -hmm. who's not removing the milk well. What we're looking for when we're tracking the weights and the urine is not whether it has milk. We've got to kind of stop that already. Like we really need to put an end to this whole mentality. The question is not the mother. 
The question is, is the baby removing mm-hmm. the milk effectively? Mm-hmm. I've proven it to like hundreds of women when they say, I have nothing. I'm like, okay, let's hand express. I'm going to hand express to you. And then they look down at the drops coming out. I'm like, oh my God, I have. <laughs> yes, you have. But your baby's not removing it well. So we need to help the baby, right? So mm-hmm. we do hand expression. Learning really good, effective hand expression is one of the best tools somebody could have going mm-hmm. into this. Mm-hmm. Maybe having done this for a few weeks before the baby comes, getting a few vials, a few tubes of colostrum prepared, and just really knowing how to express your own colostrum. Mm. This is probably one of the best tools. Then every time somebody comes in the room and says, oh my God, I'm worried your baby might need formula. You say, nope, I've got my own milk here. Yeah. Right. And it just like, it lets the pressure off too. Like yeah. one of my friends who was also my colleague, she had her first baby and the baby didn't feed well for 24 hours. In the second 24 hours, he woke up and he was fine. Everything was okay. But in that first 24 hours, he was also a little bit on the small side. They just kept checking blood sugar, kept checking the blood sugar. Every time they checked the blood sugar, it was like borderline. And she was like, okay, well, I'll just feed. And then they checked the blood sugar and just feed. After like four blood sugars, she was like, no more blood sugars. And of course, she's a doctor also. So she she could get away with that. (laughs) She put her foot down, no more blood sugars. And then they just like did not give it up. This like, maybe we should get formula. Maybe she could formula. So she, and I was breastfeeding my youngest at the time. So she called me and she was like, do you have any extra milk? I just need to get these nurses off my back. That was it. So I brought in like a little like frozen bottle of milk and was like, here you go. She was like, okay. Now, whenever the the nurses came in the room, she's like, look, and she give five mLs of breast milk (laughs) while she continued like, you know, stimulating her own nipples with the pump and continued to put them to the breast. And like, she was very, very good, like figuring this all out. And, but that little tiny bottle of human milk that she had just made everybody relax. Just the mm. fact that it was mm. there. Yeah. It just made everybody relax. And by her being able to relax, mm-hmm. it can also increase her prolactin. So remember yeah. the other thing is stress. So the stress hormones and the hormones of lactation actually counter each other. Mm. So the stress hormones increasing block the release of prolactin and oxytocin. So suddenly it becomes harder for all of this to, to function normally. We have to relax. We have to keep the baby on our chest. I also try to get moms to keep the baby on their chest, prolonged skin to skin time. And I'm getting ready to give a talk about this, about physical contact. It's basically about natural physiologic physical contact between mother and child. And I have literally like an entire PowerPoint presentation that's like study, study, research, research, article, article. Like Mm. I'm actually afraid it's going to like put everybody to sleep because it's like just a ton (laughs) of research articles. But every one of these research articles is like, and when we did prolonged skin to skin, it did this and it did that and it did Mm. this and it did that. And again, it's one of these, like, this is the physiologic norm. This is the physiologic baseline that a baby is born. Yeah. And before the baby's born, perhaps inside the uterus is the baby's habitat. After a baby is born, now this is the baby's habitat. Yeah. (laughs) So we have to get this idea like, okay, this is where the baby lives. And it's not just about the milk. It's also about the skin contact and the physical contact. And, and all of these things are important for building the milk supply and calming the baby. I had a mom a few weeks ago who I was helping with breastfeeding. So the nanny in the room kept taking the baby away and they mm-hmm. would cry. And of course, then they would always say, oh, the baby didn't get enough milk because now the baby's crying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, stop taking the baby away from the mom. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yes. 
So the baby was brought back to the mom. This was after the baby had done a really good feeding and had Mm -hmm. spit the nipple out and settled down Mm -hmm. and like perfect and happy Mm -hmm. in the mom's arms. And then as soon as they take the baby away for the eye to hold the baby so the mom can rest, the baby starts crying Mm -hmm. and nobody can put two and two together. I said, let's just try putting the baby back in the mom's arms. Mm -hmm. And then the baby went back to the mom's arms and just stopped crying. Mm. I just looked, Mm. didn't even look for the breast, wasn't rooting, wasn't looking for feeding, just stopped crying. And this mom who was not expecting this at all went, oh my God, he stopped crying. (laughs) And I said, yes. He wanted his mother. (laughs) And this was like just a shocking experience for her. And to me, it's shocking that this is such a shocking experience, (laughs) that mothers are surprised about this biological connection that a baby would be soothed just by being in his mom's arms. Mm -hmm. So that's these are sort of the expectations that I recommend going into. Expect this. Sleep and rest do not promote healing after birth. Mm -hmm. Physical contact with your baby does increase oxytocin levels facilitate wound healing Mm -hmm. every time we separate a mother and a baby we increase the stress hormones in that woman and we decrease Mm -hmm. the oxytocin levels wow and oxytocin is what facilitates wound healing so in order for a woman to heal properly her baby needs to be close to her Mm -hmm. we have to start thinking about this that's what facilitates wound healing not separation and more sleep it doesn't help anything Mm. that's so interesting because you hear the stories like over and over again like I just saw one like a YouTube video pop up and it was so sweet it was like a dad's vlog or whatever like this is what I did to help support my wife after she had the baby and so he's like I took home the pumped breast milk and I had it all ready so I could feed the baby so she could rest I like I hear this over and over again and for me it was exhausting to pump so I'm not really sure how that It's not better. (laughs) (laughs) You still have to wake up and pump. Yeah. I love talking with you because every single time I learn something, but I never put two and two about the whole like having the baby on you actually could promote healing and actually promote the recovery. Yeah. It increases oxytocin levels and prolactin levels. Mm. And these are the two hormones that are related to milk production, wound healing, uterine contractions, decreased bleeding. So even like when we look at wound healing, like like a C-sections scar, for example, Mm. would be like Mm -hmm. a wound. Mm -hmm. Oxytocin actually increases wound healing. So, and I have the data, like I said, I have this entire boring PowerPoint presentation. I have to figure out how to make it sound (laughs) interesting. And in February, there's going to be a La Leche League conference. Mm. The La Leche League China is organizing a conference and I'm one of the speakers. And so that's what I'm preparing this particular talk for. So in February, you'll be able to listen. It's going to get pre-recorded. They're going to dub me in Chinese. But (laughs) if you listen to the English version, you won't have to listen to dubbing, but they have to pre-record it so they can do the translation and do the dubbing ahead of time. But everything is going to be then sort of published online in February for this conference. And there's also a a panel that we've already recorded. And the panel included myself, Linda Smith, Katie France, and Diane West, and also um, this doctor. Sophia Lung, who's a pediatrician IBCLC in Hong Kong. So I, when we met each other online, we were like, wow, there's another one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And she lives in Hong Kong. And in any case, I was like totally, totally blown away and humbled by this amazing group of women that I was sitting on a panel with. And, mm. and so, yeah, I hope you guys get the opportunity to listen to this conference. Definitely looking forward to that conference. 
we really appreciate your time and respect your time and we appreciate you giving so much of your time to come and talk with us and share thank you so much dr layla for all of your stories and knowledge that you're sharing it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me yeah thanks so much layla thanks so much talk to you later till next time bye bye Oh, I think that's how I mu- <laughs> I think I muted you instead of making you host. <laughs> Suddenly everything makes sense. <laughs> <laughs>